You're listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered. I'm Christina Loeb. And I'm Nikel Smith. Firefighters were battling multiple fires throughout central Florida over the weekend. As Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Charlene Ochogo reports, the fire in the Ocala National Forest in Marion County is now under control. Marion County residents are getting their homes and their roads back today after the fire that forced them to evacuate this weekend. The Hopkins Prairie Fire was first spotted on Saturday in the Ocala National Forest and grew until it had burned through almost 2,000 acres. Fire crews from the U.S. Forest Service, Florida Forest Service, and Marion County Fire Rescue responded to the fire and estimate that it is now 80% contained. Residents near the fire were asked to evacuate on Saturday, but they left their homes in good hands. Marion County Fire Rescue Public Information Officer Jessica Green says fire crews were able to save most of the structures in the fire's path. They were able to save 100 homes within uh, the Sportsman Haven 2 subdivision. It's a dirt road subdivision out in the Ocala National Forest. And uh, firefighters were also able to protect and save many multiple lakefront homes along Lake George. U.S. Forest Service Public Affairs Specialist Susan Blake says the fire may have been man-made due to the lack of lightning in the area when the fire began, but the cause is still unknown. Right now, fire, uh, fire investigators and, and law enforcement are investigating the cause, and once they determine what the cause is, we'll release that information. Although they can't pinpoint what started the fire yet, they can be sure of what spread it. Green says this weekend's weather contributed to the fire's growth. The weather this weekend, you know, played a huge role in, in this fire. The low humidity and the high winds made it um, a dangerous and uh, unpredictable fire. So dangerous that the Florida Highway Patrol closed parts of State Road 19. Green says this was done for the safety of the drivers. Well, Highway 19 was closed off for uh, safety reasons to protect residents and especially in the evening and early morning hours where the smoke and the fog combine uh, to create very poor visibility. The road has since been reopened for public traffic. But as the evacuated residents return home, Blake urges motorists on State Road 19 to plan ahead since the road will be closed at night. Even though State, uh, State Road 19 is being reopened, it's being reopened during the day because they still have fire operations going and there is smoke, so people should be aware of that. For Florida's 89.1 WUFT-FM, I'm Charlene Ochogo reporting. Florida legislative sessions have been contentious things for the last few years, with conservative supermajorities running both houses and calling all the shots. The 2013 session opens tomorrow, and this year, the balance has shifted slightly. As Rick Stone reports, it's just enough to make Republicans and Democrats think they may get things done together. Last year at this time, Democratic State Representative Perry Thurston of Fort Lauderdale was stealing himself for another session under the heel of a Republican majority with an arch-conservative agenda. Now he's the House Minority Leader, and he thinks things may have changed in Tallahassee. And right now we're gearing up for battle, but we know that there won't be so many red meat issues, things that the average citizen don't think we should be dealing with. Red meat issues, abortion, school prayer, banning Islamic law, causes a tickle conservative-based voters, but keep real lawmaking from taking place. 
But the November election reduced the Republican majorities in both houses. The next election is two years away, and Republican leadership priorities have changed. Republican Don Gates of North Florida is the new Senate president. The concerns that I brought to the presidency are first ethics reform. Republicans want ethics reform. It was the best news Democratic political consultant Ben Wilcox has heard in years. They've got a pretty good ethics bill moving through the uh, Senate. It's probably going to come up on the Senate floor in the first week of the session. It's encouraging. I mean, we haven't seen real ethics reform in Florida since the 70s. The political climate isn't the only thing changing. The economy is recovering. Revenue is pouring into the state treasury. And Governor Rick Scott, elected two years ago as a Tea Party budget cutter, is proposing a record $74.2 billion budget with pay raises for teachers and bonuses for state workers. I'm Rick Stone in Miami. Florida Governor Rick Scott will be giving his third State of the State speech when the 2013 session of the Florida Legislature opens tomorrow. You can hear live coverage here on Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM starting at 11 a.m. Florida school districts will lose more than $85 million after President Obama and Congress failed to reach a compromise to avoid automatic federal budget cuts. The cuts, known as sequestration, trim $85 billion for the military, schools, airports, national parks, and other programs. State Impact Florida reporter John O'Connor spoke with Craig Kopp from member station WUSF about just how soon school districts will start feeling the pinch. John, I guess the question about the effects of sequestration on education, pretty much the same question being asked about every budget cut in sequestration. How bad is it going to be? Well, it's not entirely clear yet. What, what we've seen is U.S. Secretary of Education Arne Duncan out there claiming essentially the sky is going to fall. He was on Face the Nation on CBS News last week, and he said that there are teachers who are already getting pink slips. Is there a sky is falling aspect to any of the things you're talking about? Well, some about? of this stuff happens earlier, some of the stuff happens this fall, but what it does, it creates tremendous instability. And there are literally teachers now who are getting pink slips, who are getting notices they can't come back this fall. Well, the Washington Post came back and they actually called the school district that, that he was referring to and they said, well, no, these notices that we're sending to teachers, they have nothing to do with sequestration. There's, there's something else entirely. All right, so some of the dire predictions aren't as dire as they're being made out to be, but surely cuts in funding are going to have some effect. Let's start here in Florida. What would be cut in Florida? Well, federal education money funds basically two things. It funds what's known as the Title I program, which is programs for low-income students, and it also funds programs for students with disabilities. Florida is looking at $85.6 million in cuts. To give you some context, Governor Rick Scott has proposed a $22 billion budget next year for education. So $85.6 million, it's a small chunk of that. What school districts have said is we don't know how much flexibility we're going to have to kind of cope with those cuts. So this federal money is kind of earmarked for specific things. School districts don't know if they'll be able to move money around to plug those holes once the cuts come through. It sounds like people in education are like a lot of people who are involved in this sequestration. They don't know exactly what is going to happen. Yeah, it's true. And it's funny because they've had so long to know that this was coming. This was came out of a 2011 deal, so they've had 18 months to, to prepare for it. I spoke with Lewis Finney, who's director of the Hillsborough County Head Start program in Tampa. And what he told me was they had set aside some money to prepare for this, but the federal government can't tell them exactly how much is going to be cut. It's hard for us to make that kind of determination because we haven't gotten the appropriate guidance from the Department of Health and Human Services. But as I get further information, it does seem to be a little lower 
than what was originally expected. So we don't foresee it being an issue with kids being off the roll or teachers being laid off or anything in an immediate future. And so Finney says they have enough money to ensure services through April or May for the 3,500 kids that are enrolled in the program. But at some point, they may have to cut about 10% of the kids. There were 300 kids from the Head Start program. 10% of 300 kids. Who decides what 10%, what kids get cut from a program like Head Start? Well, Finney, Finney doesn't know yet. Uh, he's, you know, it's one of those decisions he'll make when he has to make it. And, and he said right now he's hopeful that they're going to strike a deal before then. How do you pick which, which kids are, are, are the ones who aren't going to come back and get those services because so many people depend on them? And again, we could see something happen as soon as uh, April or May with a program like Head Start. Yeah, he, he said it, a couple months down the road they have money to cover for a couple of months for both staff and students, but eventually they're going to have to make a decision because the cuts are coming. John O'Connor of State Impact Florida, sequestration's effect on education. Some of it is still wait and see, I guess. It is. Florida's congressional delegation has mixed reactions to Governor Rick Scott's decision to expand the state's Medicaid program. Matt Laszlo reports from Washington that Democrats are hoping his change, of course, will allow the two sides to make bipartisan changes to the bill. Most Republicans are quick to brush aside Governor Scott's change of heart on whether to expand Medicaid under the president's health care law. It's a bad choice. That's South Florida Republican Mario Diaz-Balart. Critics argue the three-year trial period of expanding Medicaid in the Sunshine State will likely be extended because it's hard to kick people off the rolls once they're in the system. And even though the law guarantees 100% funding initially, Diaz-Balart says it will end up being expensive. That money is not there for the states in the future. I mean, you know, the law is it evaporates, right? It starts evaporating. Democrats see it differently. Congressman Patrick Murphy says it's a win-win for the state. Look, it's, it's 100% paid for by the federal government. Uh, the governor was adamant about not taking it, but let's not forget he's got a re-election to start worrying about now. So uh, whatever the reason he did it, uh, I'm glad he did it. Now Murphy says he thinks Scott is in a better position to help the Florida delegation tweak the controversial law. But let's, instead of demagoguing and just blaming, you know, certain folks for what happened, let's talk about real solutions and how we can really improve it. The only snag is that Scott still needs to convince the legislature to expand Medicaid, and that could prove to be the hardest lift of all. I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington. A cost estimate for closing Florida's pension system to new employees is finally in. Legislative leaders commissioned the report to determine how much it will cost to close the pension program. As Florida Public Radio's Lynn Hatter reports, the benefits would still have to be paid, even though there won't be enough funds for employees in the system to support them. By eliminating the state's pension plan, new people hired after January 1, 2014 would be forced into the state's other plan a 401k-style plan known as the investment plan. On Thursday, the proposal picked up the committee sponsorship of the House Government Operations Subcommittee. The committee's chair is Republican Representative Jason Broder. doesn't hurt anybody who's currently in the system, doesn't break any promises to those who haven't been hired yet, and it doesn't ask for any taxpayer increases uh, either. So um, I want to make sure everybody understands that. But despite Broder's assurances, he did admit he did not have any concrete numbers to go on regarding the bill's financial impact since lawmakers are still awaiting the results of a study commissioned last month. That made Democratic Representative Irv Slosberg question why the legislature was still trying to go forward with such a bill. If this is a, a new structure, if like I'm, you know, building a new building or, or a new structure, don't you think it's wise 
to have your numbers forecasted uh, before you build the new structure. The bill also drew opposition from many public employee unions, especially those who represent special risk employees like law enforcement officers and firefighters. Here's Rowan Taylor, president of the Metro-Dade International Association of Firefighters. Let's picture a hill with a little kid on his little tricycle trying to ride up this hill. And he gets halfway up the hill and a boulder comes down and he diverts from the boulder. And he keeps going and he keeps going and he gets to the top of the hill and a size 14 shoes come out and kick him back down the hill. Because that's what we're doing. It seems like every time the Florida retirement system is trying to do better, we do something to try to tear it apart. While all nine Republicans on the committee voted in favor of the plan, some say the bill has a long way to go before it can be passed out of the full Florida legislature. The bill passed out of the House Government Operations Subcommittee along party lines with three Democrats opposed. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Sasha Cordner. What used to be the home to some of Gainesville's criminals is on its way to housing the city's homeless. Plans are in the works to transform the closed-down Gainesville Correctional Facility into a homeless assistance center. Now project leaders are looking to other cities that have done a similar transition for some insight. Gainesville Alachua County Office of Homelessness Chair Teresa Lowe visited Atlanta recently, where a facility like the one they're trying to create is located. It's called the Gateway Center, and it's a homeless assistance center housed in a former jail that opened about five years ago. Lowe says the idea to visit the Gateway Center came from someone very familiar with its facilities. One day I was talking to one of our homeless clients, and we were talking about the Gainesville Correctional Institution and the plans that the city has for turning that into um, a, a service center. And he mentioned that he had recently come from Atlanta and he had visited the Gateway Center and that that was also in a former correctional institution and that they had a really good program. And in his opinion, the only problem with that program is that no one ever wanted to leave. After that conversation and some research, they figured the Atlanta facility would be a good model for the one in Gainesville. Lowe says the trip to Gateway Center was an informative one. We learned a lot of things. <laughs> we spoke with the, um, the people that were running the facility in Atlanta and found out how they got started on their project, um, what was involved in getting it to the point that it is now where it's up and functioning and very busy and actively engaging the community, uh, what types of services they provide at that center, um, opportunities that, that they may have missed that we could possibly incorporate into ours, um, we learned what didn't work there so that we can try to avoid those same mistakes. One of those mistakes Lowe noticed with the Atlanta site was its ability to choose the right time to open up the facility, as the plan is to have the Gainesville site open up in phases. They had unfortunate timing when they opened their facility. They opened with the thought to just open on one floor and start slowly, which is what we're hoping to do here. And they happened to open the same weekend that Hurricane Katrina was hitting. And so they became an evacuation site for all the, the evacuees from Katrina. And so they ended up having to actually open up their services immediately, the whole, the whole building. Um, and that made it more of a challenge for them to ever get anything up and into place. So that's something that we want to try to avoid here if at all possible. Uh, hopefully Mother Nature will cooperate and we will be able to start slowly, which is our plan. 
That since they want to open the Gainesville Center with only a few services and then gradually expand the facility. However, there were also some positive aspects of the Atlanta trip that Lowe hopes they can incorporate into the Gainesville facility. We did like the way that they operate their, their center and their management plan. Um, we liked their, very much their attitude toward the clients that they have in their facility. Um, they have some good, you know, very good programs set up in place. We like that their, um, their motto is that collaboration is in their DNA, which we thought was great because that's exactly the try kind of attitude that we're trying to foster at our facility. So that was really our big takeaway was that collaboration is key to making this thing work. The cities of Gainesville and Atlanta have their differences, such as how much more urban Atlanta is compared to Gainesville. Lowe says that means Gainesville has to do more community outreach to, lo to locate the city's homeless residents. However, Lowe says the similarities between the two cities are evident as well. They were saying that for meal services, right now they currently provide meals just to their residents. But if someone walks in off the street, which it was, is someone that they wouldn't normally see there because they're not a soup kitchen, they have a lot of places they can direct them to, which sounded a lot like our services here. There's always some place we can direct someone to get a meal, even if we weren't going to provide services on site. Um, they uh, have to work closely with the other providers. And again, they don't try to provide every service for every person, um, which is something that we know that we're not going to be able to do. So we want to make sure that we focus on, on our core group of clients and then collaborate with other people to provide the other services. For more information about transitioning the Gainesville Correctional Facility into a homeless assistance center, visit the Gainesville Community Innovation Facebook page. The race for mayor of Gainesville has several candidates. All this week, we'll hear from those candidates, including incumbent mayor Craig Lowe. Today, we'll hear from former District 1 City Commissioner Sherwin Henry, who would like to lead the city as mayor. Henry says one of the first priorities he would have if elected on March 19th is restoring the trust and confidence of the citizens in their city government. That we, as their representatives, will welcome them as far as the public part of the meeting, mm -hmm. you're hearing their concerns, responding to their concerns, and just letting them know that we, as their representatives, do, uh, do care about their what's happening in their neighborhoods and hearing from them as to what they want to see happen in their community. Henry says his second priority if elected as mayor of Gainesville would be to improve the community's economy. There are still areas in Gainesville that are um, economically challenged, mm -hmm. and we really need to bring about a new way of thinking as far as recruiting companies um, that will bring jobs here for all sectors of employment be it the blue collar, the white collar, the skilled trade, and even the service sector as well. Um, we have families that are hurting, that are living in poverty, and we need to really be aware as to how we will bring about opportunity for, for the families that aren't living the quality of life that's touted in Gainesville to have a chance and an opportunity to do that. Another area of concern for Henry is lack of adequate transportation in all parts of Gainesville. Well, the transportation issue is very important because if people who don't have cars can't travel, 
to seek employment and gain employment, then they're facing an uphill battle. And so transportation must be accessible to all citizens in Gainesville and Alachua County. I mean, our transit system is called regional transit, which means then that we must allow our citizens to have uh, access to expect timely and efficient transportation in all areas of our city. Henry says the city needs to revisit the transit tax and go back to the drawing board for a solution the people will support. He adds the community has also told him on the campaign trail that they want their roads repaired. The citizens have been sharing with us that they want their roads fixed and I know that their are those that want to see the bus rapid transit happen. But to me, that's still in the planning stages. Number two is going to be very expensive to implement. And in my opinion, good leaders listen to those they're serving. And the residents for a number of years have been crying out to us to fix the road. So in my opinion, why should we essentially look over the existing problem, which is our road, our deteriorating road infrastructure, and not devote resources to fixing the road. If elected as mayor, Henry plans to continue fostering town-gown relationships. The way that we've always done it now, um, Innovation Square is under the university's umbrella, but our community redevelopment agency, as well as our planning department, work very closely with the university to expedite the um, different needs of planning to make Innovation Square happen. And the city of Gainesville and the university have always had a, a, a great partnership, and I will continue to expand upon that. But at the same time, the city of Gainesville's uh, economic progress fortunes shouldn't just always depend upon the university. The city itself should have an economic development and an economic prog progress vision as to what we can do also to grow the economy of our city and make it um, a, an even greater place for us to live. Henry says he'd like to see students at the University of Florida participate more in the community beyond the campus of UF and says many nonprofit organizations could use help from students. Overall, Sherwin Henry says he's the right person for the position of mayor of Gainesville because he has very unique qualifications. Well, number one, I'm a native of Gainesville, so I come from a, a very different historical perspective as to where Gainesville has come from and where we can go. The second thing is I've served six years on the city commission representing District 1 as well. I've also been an employee of the University of Florida for 38 years, so not only do I have a great understanding of my community at large, but I also have a great understanding of the needs of the university and how both the university and the city can coexist as well. Henry says his six years serving on the city commission and his nearly four decades at the University of Florida have given him the kind of experience the city needs in a mayor. I can build consensus. I'm a very sound decision maker. 
as well, and that's proven by my tenure as the District 1 Commissioner, mm -hmm. and I am a proven entity. I'm not speaking to you from what I feel or think can be. I know that we can achieve the goals that I have in mind, and I just need to be there to implement them. And I look forward to victory on March 19th. Candidate for mayor of Gainesville, Sherwin Henry, will continue our series of interviews with the candidates tomorrow on the front page edition of All Things Considered. Meanwhile, city of Gainesville voters should be receiving their blue and white sample ballot for the March 19, 2013 city of Gainesville election in the mail this week. The sample ballot includes the Gainesville mayor and district four races and a city of Gainesville charter amendment question relating to city election dates and terms of office. Voters may also view sample ballots for the city of Gainesville election online at www.votealachua.com. Florida lawmakers in the Senate and House are working on bills that would tighten up the rules for how legislatures collect and spend campaign money. There are a few differences between the House and Senate's plans, but Florida Public Radio's Regan McCarthy reports Senator Jack Litvala has just proposed a measure to knock out one of those differences. The House's campaign finance bill would get rid of a special campaign fund called a Committee of Continuous Existence, or CCE. The Senate bill would keep that around but put rules in place for how it can spend money. But Senator Jack Latvala, a Republican from Clearwater who chairs the Senate Ethics Committee, has now filed a measure that would follow the House's lead when it comes to CCEs. It does eliminate committees of continuous existence. At the same time, it keeps a reasonable contribution limit on uh, contributions to state office in Florida. The House and Senate plans also differ significantly when it comes to the maximum contribution an individual would be allowed to make. Latvala says the Senate proposal would keep the limit at $500 where it is now. Meanwhile, the House bill would raise that limit to 10000 For Florida Public Radio, I'm Regan McCarthy. Big box businesses are great for economic development, but once businesses leave, it's hard to fill the space. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Michael Higdon has more on how an area in Gainesville is struggling because so many big spaces are still left to fill. The old Walmart location is still not filled, which has many people wondering what it will take for businesses to move back into the Northwest 13th Street area. Realtor for several properties in the area, Betsy Whitaker, says all it will take for businesses to be interested is to see the demographics the area has to offer. It's just a process, and I think the hardest thing is with these big retailers. They don't understand the community as well as I do, having lived here for 40 years. So. You know, I have to explain to them what people locally would prefer if they had the choice. Um, but uh, they kind of like to stick together, and it's, uh, you know, the more they zone out on the Archer Road in that area, the less opportunity you have for a healthy city development that's balanced. President of the Gainesville Area Chamber of Commerce, Tim Giuliani, says their main focus is leading the economy forward and creating thriving businesses, which leads to a thriving community. He says they work closely with existing businesses to give them the resources they need. The big box stores are driven by market data and demographics. The mom and pop stores and many of our members are able to um, quickly align their businesses with the market. And, and so over time, 
you'll see that Gainesville supports local businesses. Our, our chamber is very supportive of local businesses, and that's why many of them thrive and why many of them are around for so long and pass from generation to generation. Owner of Adam's Rib Company, Adam Brewer, says that with the big box businesses leaving, it hasn't really affected his business. But with the huge spaces still not filled, there is a reason for concern. It has to do with like, you know, buddying up and part basically, you know, buddying up with other good businesses, you know. Um, I would say, you know, when you when I opened my restaurant in 2005, we had Pizza Hut next door. It was a great opportunity for both of us to capitalize on different markets. You know, literally the parents would go in and get barbecue and send go send the kids over to get their little personal pan pizzas and everybody was happy. And, um, you know, there's something to be said about, you know, complimentary businesses being around each other. Um, when there are no businesses, you know, next door to me, that does concern me. You know, you want other businesses in the area, um, businesses that complement what, you know, you're doing. Giuliani adds over the years, Gainesville has been going through a transition. He says the main thing is to let businesses know about these opportunities. You know, when you have a shopping center that has a large um, tenant, there's only, many, only so many um, replacements that, that can consider a space that large. So in some instances, we've seen uh, times when companies in the shopping center have gotten creative to fill that space and look to um, maybe non-traditional ways of filling the space. Um, but again, it comes back to if we focus on growing our economy, if we focus on job creation, those, you know, those stores and, and retailers will follow where the, the growth is in our economy, and we want to make sure that Gainesville is one of those places. Giuliani adds the city is looking to implement new standards for how a location should look. It's a work in progress. Um, we've provided feedback to the city, and they're taking an approach that's used in Innovation Square of identifying all the, the regulations on the front end to create more certainty and, and a, a clear message. And so we're working with them to transition that success and translate that success to parts of the community like um, 13th Street. Brewer says the improvements will help the area with structural improvements and how a business looks to onlookers from the road. I think that it's been a long time coming. Whatever they decide to do or whatever we're going to do in the city, you know, that's the gateway to the community. Um, you know, I don't know how long you've been around Gainesville, people have been around Gainesville, but this was originally the Gainesville Mall was located where the Lowe's site is. Um, that was a big thing in the 80s. Uh, there was a Woolworths there and a couple other, you know, small retail stores that people really enjoyed shopping at. Um, that dissolved and, you know, along came Lowe's and you know, things do change and transform. So you hope with this transformation that, that they are focusing on, you know, making this the necessary improvements um, for the area. You know, it's hard for us because we, we're tenants in a building that's uh, very, very, uh, old and, and, and our uh, landlord isn't willing to work with us to make the necessary improvements. So it's, it's hard sometimes for, for people that are, I guess, leasing. When, when you come in and you buy and you're a big business, you can afford to make those, you know, structural improvements, improvements around the, the facade, to your facade, uh, what you look like, you know, from the highway is really, really important. So, um, you know, I hope that whatever they're implementing, that they can, they can get, kind of get everybody to jump on board. Um, you know, there's just, you know, things that have to be done to upkeep a business. And if, if it's not done and, and the landlords and the, the tenants aren't taking care of the properties, um, you know, I think things do kind of dissolve and 
like you said, um, for lack of a better word, you know, kind of crummy. Whitaker says the people of Gainesville are very cognizant of the fact that they went shopping in the area of Northwest 13th Street. Hopefully, you know, we will be able to attract uh, a retailer that will go in there because our traffic counts are excellent. There are 35,000 cars a day and the demographics support it and it's just really trying to convince uh, the retailers that there is shopping opportunities other than the Archer Road, which is a disaster for us to get in it, for people to get in and out of them. It's very frustrating. Julie Annie adds, when people look at Gainesville, we have a great story to tell. Whitaker says she has tenants that are very interested in the area, but how long the negotiations will take is still unknown. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Michael Higdon in Gainesville. The o old Ocala City Auditorium could soon be singing a new song thanks to the efforts of the Ocala Symphony Orchestra. Florida's 89.1 WUFCFM's Kylie Lukuski has the story. Tuesday morning, the Ocala Symphony Orchestra begins the first movement of their project to renovate the city auditorium. The event takes place in Tuscawilla Park, where the auditorium is located. Orchestra Executive Director Samit Afghani says details about the project will be revealed at the event. Tomorrow we have big news that's going to give a lot of details about where the project is currently and how it's going to be developing over the next year. Built in the late 1930s, the auditorium has recently been deemed unfit for use and closed. Questions of renovation and new uses have been rumored for years, but Afghani says that close cooperation with the city and the county will allow this project to be a success. The um, old city auditorium in Ocala and Tuscola Park we have um, been working closely with the city and city officials to come up with a plan to renovate, restore, and turn it into a um, centralized location for our, all arts organizations in Marion County. In recent years, historical buildings around the area have been crumbling under the weight of a bad economy. Old libraries, post offices, and several historic homes have been torn down or allowed to fall into disrepair with no money to spare for costly renovations. The city auditorium itself narrowly avoided the chopping block as recently as 2007. But things are looking up. Started in 1975, the Ocala Symphony Orchestra holds dozens of concerts and events in the area every year, and now they've begun to look for donors to save the building. The auditorium has nearly 15,000 square feet available, and Afghani hopes the large space can be used for the good of all the community as a center for the arts. The project that we're working on goes far beyond just the orchestra. It's for all arts and organ in, in all arts organizations in Marion County. It's a way to bring them together, have a centralized location for performances, for ticketing, and really be a beacon for the arts in Marion County. The event begins at 9 a.m. in Tuscawilla Park, Tuesday morning. For 89.1 WUFTFM, this has been Kylie Lukuski. A University of Florida expert says mosquitoes may be even more of a nuisance in the Sunshine State this summer. Last June, Tropical Storm Debbie caused flooding in many parts of Florida, unleashing large numbers of floodwater mosquitoes. This summer, UF entomologist Phil Kaufman says there may be a repeat on the way. The huge blood-feeding insects, sometimes called gallinippers, are notoriously aggressive and have a painful bite. Kaufman says increased rain along with areas likely to flood can cause these mosquito eggs to finally hatch after being dormant for years. Well, this, this is one of Florida's largest uh, blood-feeding mosquitoes. Um, it has some sibling species, so some others that are, are very much like it. 
Um, the challenge is that it, it develops in um, flood water basins, so areas that are prone to flooding. And when we get sufficient volumes of water, like we would after a tropical storm, uh, the, the mosquitoes may have laid dormant for years, and they'll all emerge about the same time. And, and so their size, as well as the, the large numbers that emerge, are what uh, kind of make them unique, and uh, people notice them. Kaufman says these pesky insects become an issue when standing water collects after rainstorms. We need a, another, uh, either a large rain event like a tropical storm or a hurricane, uh, as well as, uh, or I should say, or, or um, uh, continuous rains where we, we see some of the lower lying areas that normally don't have water standing would end up with water standing for um, several days to a week. Uh, so you'll see that in things like pastures and areas that you normally don't see standing water. When that happens is when this mosquito can become a problem. Given the numbers Florida saw last year, Kaufman says it is a good indicator of what may come. If, if we get the rains, we get the mosquitoes. So uh, that we had a, an abundance of them last year suggests that the eggs are going to be in place. And, um, you know, the more recent that happens, the, uh, you know, that we had one last year, sets the stage for it to occur again if we have sufficient rain. Thanks for tuning in to the front page edition of All Things Considered. This has been a broadcast of Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Nikkel Smith. And I'm Christina Loeb. Stay tuned for a news update from, from NPR and the WUFTFM news team.